Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe the words that you just sang? Do you believe that the powers of hell cannot stand to Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain and is risen again, who is worthy to open the scroll, to read the names of those who are written in the book of life? Do you believe it? Do you believe the words that you just sang? Do you believe that Jesus has conquered the powers of hell and that there is no need to fear? Do you believe it? My question to you tonight is, if you believe it, are you living like it? Are you living like it? Are you living like Jesus has already conquered evil? Are you living like there is nothing for us to fear because He is the Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll? Do you believe it and are you living like it? Tonight I want to talk to you about the nature of the church. And uh, this is something that um, I've been thinking about a great deal over the last couple of years. Maybe, honestly, and I'm, I'm not joking, I might have been thinking about this too much. I might have been thinking about the church so much that I've forgotten about the Lamb who is worthy. The Lamb who is worthy to open the scroll. First and foremost, we need to come to God. We need to come to Jesus Christ and to worship and to open our hearts to Him and to realize, to have a revelation of who Jesus is. The worship team today, um, tonight, they, they came and they gave you the message. What I'm going to do right now is I'm just going to provide a little appendix, okay? Um, several years ago, uh, my friend uh, Steve Noblet, who's the executive director for uh, CCHF, um, asked me to come and to speak at his conference. And uh, it was really it was the first time I'd really spoken at a conference. And um, Steve had gotten uh, sick right before the conference um, and was on doctor's restrictions and was not allowed to... To, to speak. They said that he couldn't speak. And so this was a last minute thing. And um, he came and asked me if I would speak on, on, on his behalf. And I said, well, what are you, uh, what are you doing the lesson on? And he, he said, well, I'm, I'm teaching about um, the church and the church's role in, in healthcare and in missions. And I was like, well, that's something I've been thinking a lot about. Okay. So tell me what, um, what's God put on your heart? Has God put anything on your heart? And he's like, yeah, to teach out of Matthew chapter 16. And so um, I went to Matthew chapter 16 and I started reading it and, and read through it. And I've been reading and meditating and, and teaching on this uh, passage for, for several years now. And, and I really think that in Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus Christ is revealing the true nature of the church. In fact, it's the first time in the, in the New Testament that the word church is mentioned uh, on the lips of Jesus. And it's one of the very few times that Jesus himself talks about the church. That, that most of what we learn from the church is in the, in the book of Acts um, and in Paul's writings. Um, and even in, in the, the great book of Revelation that we just sang about a few minutes ago. But this is the first time um, that Jesus talks about the church. And I think that he's re- revealing something about the true nature of the church and who we are to be as his children. Okay, and so if you have a, a floppy Bible like this one, uh, open it to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. If uh, that's not your preference and you have an electronic Bible like this one, turn it on and uh, scroll down. <clears throat> We're just going to read through the end of that chapter. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to Simon, uh, he, he said to, wait, sorry. He said to Simon, Peter replied, You, wait. You know, it's actually, honestly, easier for me to tell the story than to read it, okay? Can I just do that? I'm getting a little tripped up, okay? Part one, first thing that happens. Jesus says, 
who do people say that the Son of Man is? All right? The Son of Man is, uh, is something that tripped me up a lot as a kid when I was um, growing up in the church. Um, I thought I knew what the, the term Son of Man is, and, and then I didn't know, and then I didn't know, and then I didn't know. And uh, I was really confused by it. And, um, you know, to me, when I read it, I just I figured that it's, it's like the, the counterpart to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Like the title Son of God reveals uh, Jesus Divinity And the term Son of Man reveals his humanity. And you take those together and you have a, a pretty clear picture of who Jesus is. And so for many years, that's what I thought Jesus was saying when he was referring to himself as the Son of Man. That he's, he's a man like I am. And that cannot be further from the truth. That's not what the term the, the Son of Man is. And that's not where it comes from. It comes from a prophecy of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 um, Daniel sees a vision, and in that vision, it says he, that, uh, Daniel says, I saw one like a son of man come before the Ancient of the Days, and the Ancient of Days gave to the Son of Man all power and authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. So when Jesus refers to himself as, as the Son of Man, and he refers to himself by that title more than any other title in the New Testament, more than the Son of God, more than Messiah, He's referring to himself as the Son of Man. And when he does so, he's making a claim of authority, not only over the Jewish nation, but over all the nations of the earth. And he's saying what's happening here in Daniel's vision is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, the Son of Man, is coming before the Ancient of Days, God his Father. And God his Father is giving power and authority over all of his creation. And he's handing that to his Son. And Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they respond to him, and they say, um, some say uh, that you're uh, a prophet, like Elijah or Jeremiah. And Jesus asks him again, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Son of the living God, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus says to him, Peter, it's not flesh and blood that's revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And and Simon, son of Jonah, you shall be called Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, so the, the first pillar of the church, the first thing that we have to understand about the church is that the church can only come into existence through a revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the one who has been given authority over all things. If we do not recognize the authority of Jesus Christ in our life, then we are not the church. When you, as missionaries, are going into another culture, and you go and, and you uh, serve the people, and you heal them of their sickness... If you are not proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he has authority over the nation that you've come to serve, if you're not laying Jesus Christ as as the cornerstone, then you failed your job. Our uh, King's Pride was uh, talking last night about um, how we have to marry evangelism and healing in missions. That we can't have one without the other. And uh, he's exactly right. And you know why he's right? Because Jesus said it. Um, And and Jesus not only said it, but uh, he did it. He lived it out. And when he sent his disciples out in Luke chapter 10, what did he send them out? He he sent them out to preach that the kingdom of God has come near. And he sent them out to heal the sick and to cast out demons. That the two have to go together. If we do one without the other, that's only 50%. And 50% is failure. And I know this because of freshman chemistry class. (laughs) To my everlasting shame, I know. And when I got that 50, I promise you, I did not run back to the dorm room and go, Hey guys, guess what? I got half of them right! Yeah! No! I got, I failed. And now I'm a preacher. We got to go for a hundred percent, okay? And and when I was listening to King's Pride, I was like, oh man, I, I know what these doctors are thinking because I talk to medical students all all the time, and what they're thinking is, look at these hands. God has made me to be a surgeon. He's given me hands to heal. 
But I'm not an evangelist. He hasn't given me those gifts. That's for somebody else to do. I know that that's what was going through your head. At least some of you. If that's not your gift, you know what you can do? Pray for it. You can pray for it. You can do it. And here, I mean, it's really, evangelism is like one of the easiest gifts there is, right? And I, I wouldn't consider myself a gifted evangelist, but I've been praying like crazy that God would make me an evangelist, that he would bring evangelists into my life, that he would help me to learn what it is to be an evangelist. And all it is is this, is proclaiming the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who has been given power and authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. And inviting people to bend their knee and to recognize His authority in their life and to surrender their lives to Him. It's the message that you heard proclaimed by the worship team. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb who has been slain for the forgiveness of your sins. Won't you receive Him? What is preventing you from receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this day? There. Now, you've been equipped as an evangelist. You can marry that with your healing. Go forth. 100%. Okay? You've got to do it. King's pride was exactly right. We have to offer people Jesus. And we have to do that not only when we go overseas, but we have to do that in our clinics. Where we are now. Offer people Jesus. If we're not offering them Jesus, we're only doing 50%, and 50% is failure. Give them Jesus. It came through a revelation, didn't it? It came through a revelation for Peter. You know what's amazing about, uh, just, there are lots of different ways. When you read the scriptures, there's lots of different ways that Jesus goes about preaching and teaching. And sometimes he tells stories, and sometimes he explains them, and sometimes he, he doesn't. Um, sometimes he preaches. Other times, like this, he just asks a couple questions. He didn't teach Peter his identity, that God revealed it. And that's what we need today. That's what we need this weekend is that we need a fresh revelation of the divine authority of Jesus Christ in our lives. That we've got to see him as the son of man, as the one who has authority over our lives. And that he can do whatever he wants with us because we belong to him. And it's our job to submit and to surrender to that authority. So the first thing that has to happen is the church is being established. There has to be a revelation of Jesus Christ, and that's given to Peter. And then Jesus says to Peter, um, It's not flesh and blood that's revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, Simon, son of John, of John Simon, son of Jonah, um, you shall be called Peter which means rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, that's what the whiteboard's here for. This is part two. The nature of the church is missional. Okay? Um, Gates. Has anybody ever seen a gate before? Right? Yeah, okay. Um, A gate is not an offensive weapon. All right? Have you ever seen anybody try to attack another person with a gate? All right? That's not its purpose, right? A gate is, is, a, is a defensive measure, and I want to... I'm not an artist, all right? Um, let's see, we'll do this right here. Okay, in Jesus' day, every major city was a walled city, okay? And the walls served a purpose. It was to protect the people of the city. And the only way into and out of the city was through the city gates, I can't remember. I should, have, I should have looked it up. But uh, Jerusalem, I think, had maybe eight gates. The only one I can ever remember is the Dung Gate. <clears throat> but there were other gates. Okay. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's describing hell as a walled city. All right. He's using a metaphor here. Now, I firmly believe that hell is a real place. But he's, Jesus here is describing hell as a walled city with gates into and out of the city. 
And in, in hell, in this walled city, there are people who are trapped. Okay, there. Ephesians uh, 2, 1 through 3 tells us um, that all of us uh, are born as children of wrath. That we are born under the authority of Satan. That we follow, um, we follow the, the evil desires of our heart in the ways of this world. We're trapped in hell. And there's nothing that we can do about it. We cannot get out of hell on our own. But the rest of Ephesians 2, 4 through 9 explains the good news. is that God knows our condition and that He came to save it. And it's, and it's by His grace, it's through Jesus Christ dying for us and setting us free that we're saved. And, and that we place our faith in that, we believe that, we trust that. And we are saved by faith, not by works, so that no man might, may boast. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, is the stone that the builders rejected. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. And I really learned what, it, what the cornerstone, the purpose of the cornerstone was several years ago when I went to build a shed. And um, I was laying out these pillars, and there, there are 12 pillars that, that the foundation rested upon. And uh, I would lay a, a pillar, and then I'd go, and the ground that I was building on was really uneven. And I would lay a pillar here, a couple of um, bricks right here, and then I'd, I'd go over and lay a couple more bricks. And I kept raising and lowering the bricks, and I'd go and, and dig the ground out a little bit to, to lower it down and mound up some earth over here. And I, I promise you, all day, I spent all day trying to get this stupid thing level. And I couldn't figure it out. And it's like this. is like God said, don't you remember Jesus Christ is the cornerstone? Of course he is. All right? And so and what does that have to do with building? Well, if you just lay the cornerstone first and use that as your standard, and then you level all the other bricks according to that one standard, I promise you once I figured that out, it took me ten minutes to level the thing. As long as that one brick doesn't move, and you adjust all the other ones to that one brick, then you have a, a, a strong level foundation. Jesus Christ is our standard. He is the one that we are to follow. He is the first brick that is laid. He is the cornerstone that is laid in the temple of God that God is building this day. Okay, And God is building His temple not with literal stones and bricks, but with living stones, with flesh and blood. With Peter and James and John. That this is the church. We've been, uh, my wife Kim and I have been trying to teach our kids this principle. And you guys know this. I hate this thing. I'm going to show you. You remember doing this? Here is the church. Here is its steeple. Open the doors, and there are all the people. That is such bad theology. <laughs> it is. This, folks, is the church. This can come or go. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's just a building where the church gathers. And you can gather anywhere. You can gather under a tree. You don't need this. You need this. And so as we drive down the street, we'll tell our children, we'll say, look, there is another building where the church gathers, and another one. We're driving through Memphis, and another one, and another one, and another one. We've got lots of buildings. If we had as many disciples as we did church buildings in Memphis, we would change that city. I lost one of my markers already. Okay. So this is the church. And, and what Jesus is saying is, he's telling the church, he's telling, he's telling Peter that, that we are to storm the gates of hell. We're to batter them down. That we bring the fight to hell. That Jesus sends disciples out. And like I said in Luke chapter 10, it's a great picture of it. That Jesus says this, he says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. And that you are to go and to, to preach and to heal. You're to go into all the cities that I'm about to go in. 
And when they did that, the disciples, they, they did, they were faithful to that. And they returned and they said, Jesus, we saw Satan fall like a star. And the sick were healed. They took the fight to hell. They went into the world. In the great tragedy of the uh, American Christian church, and we're going all over the world now, teaching bad ecclesiology by doing this. We're not calling this the church, but we're building our own walled cities. And we consider this the world out here an evil place. That people are out here living in sin. And that we've come in to the church. We've even called it a sanctuary, a safe place. And what we see the mission of the church is is to, to come and stand by the door. And scream out, hey, it's not safe out there. Come in here where it's safe, where you have security, where it's comfortable. We might even take a two-week mission trip to go out here to talk to these people for a little while, and then we run back into the safety of the church. Safety and security is, um, I think it's important to God, right? But we're to find our security in God himself. That God is our refuge and strength. And that when we take a building and we give it characteristics of God, we've just committed idolatry. We can't look to our buildings to provide us safety and security. We spend lots of money on buildings. We love buildings. The very best of churches may spend 10% of their tithes and offerings on the mission of the church. You know what the the other 90% is spent on? You and me, us. Programs that fill our needs. Pastors that will preach and teach to us. Programs for our children. It's a paradigm that's got to change, folks, because it's not biblical. We have to embrace the, the, the picture of the church that Jesus Christ has given us. That the, the, the church is missional. That this is the church. And that we're to join together to storm the gates of hell. Jesus chose Peter, of all people, as his rock. And I'm so thankful that he did because I know, like, Peter, we can identify with Peter probably more than any other person in the Bible, right? There's so much that's given us, and and Peter messes up, he screws up so much. And in fact, it's the very next passage in the Bible that we see Peter screwing up. Jesus has just said, Peter, you're the rock on which I'll build my church. And then the very next thing that happens is that uh, Jesus starts to to teach, and he says, he tells his disciples that I'm headed to Jerusalem where I'm going to suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders there, but, but three days later I'll rise again. And Peter says, no, Lord, this can't be. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not thinking with the thoughts of God, but that you're thinking with the thoughts of man. That whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself, herself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever loses his life will find it. But whoever tries to hold on to his life will lose it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Jesus has called us to a life of self-denial, and the church needs to reflect that. 
The church needs to reflect the image of the cross, of self-denial, of denying ourselves the pleasures and the programs so that we can make the sacrifices necessary to take the battle to the enemy. And not for two weeks, but to set up camp outside the gates of hell. To live there. To worship Jesus there. To proclaim the good news there. Let me share with you um, a couple of uh, maybe hopefully practical sources. There's my other pen. Um, of how <clears throat> of how we've tried to get at this. And, and look, man, we have failed miserably over and over again. Um, but but we're trying to figure out what this this paradigm of church looks like for us in Memphis. Um, my wife and I. Uh, many years ago, uh, felt the Lord calling us to move into an inner city community in Memphis. And um, we, we weren't really prepared for that. Uh, you know, we've, my, my wife was telling me the other day about a lady who came up to her and said, Oh, isn't it just amazing God's calling on your life and how he's, he's prepared and equipped you to do the work that you've done? My wife's like, I live in an African-American neighborhood. I grew up uh, in Alpharetta, Georgia. There were three black people in my school. I know nothing about African-American culture. We've learned a lot. But God said go, so we went. And we we lived in this home, uh, this small 750-square-foot home in the inner city for about um, seven years. And uh, we had tremendous amounts of irrational fears that we had to overcome. And my wife and I are both fiercely independent people, um, but... I was afraid to leave my wife at home um, during the day, much less at night. And we spent way too much time together for two fiercely independent people. (laughs) We really got on each other's nerves. This fear. We were gripped with fear. But we knew that God was calling us to take the gospel to the gates of hell, to, to move in to this spiritually dark place and to live out our lives there. And over time, things got better. And part of the reason they got better is because of prayer. Part of the reason is we started to get to know our neighbors and we said, hey, some of these people are really, really nice. You know, they're, they're good folks here. And I learned a lot. And there, there was a lady who lived next door to us who was tremendous. She taught me more about what it means to, to, to be a pastor to people and to have compassion than, than any of my seminary professors did. She always talked about, uh, what, about going um, to the community center to help the old folks. She was 75 years old. She would go and help the old folks and cook, cook lunch for them. And then she'd go down the street to the neighborhood school and uh, that she would serve the kids there. And then um, during the weekend, she would go and, and visit her, her uh, neighbors who were um, shut-ins. And who couldn't, couldn't get out of the house. And she would just go and visit with them. And she's like, i got to go check on the old people. She was awesome. And God, I really believe, in part brought me there to, to see there's, there's so many people that he's risen up, that he's, he's raising up um, to do his work in the oddest places, in the darkest places, the most spiritually deprived places on earth. God's got people there doing his work, and he wanted me to see that. Several years went by, and and my wife and I started to get comfortable, believe it or not, in our home, and we loved it. And our neighborhood started to stabilize, and things were getting better, and we felt um, things were, were finally starting to settle down. And we hear God again saying, I want you to go deeper into the community. I want you to go deeper into the culture. We want you to take another step of faith. And so we started to look for some land about six blocks from where we lived, uh, another, another part of the neighborhood. Um, and we found some land and we built a house. And uh, we moved into that house. And um, one day I was getting ready to go to a... a we're getting ready to go to another conference. We go to way too many conferences. I was packing up the bags and going to the conference. I looked across the street, and there's my neighbor Mario standing out on his front porch. And he's pulling out a little baggie and unwinding it. He's got these little rocks in it that were clear. 
And uh, another man was coming up to the porch, and he pulled out a big green wad of stuff. And they exchanged, and the guy with the green wad gave it to the other guy, and he took the little baggie with the pretty rocks in it and put it in his pocket and walked off. And a few minutes later, there was about a 19-year-old boy that came skating up on his skateboard. And he walked up on the porch, and there's Mario again. He's got another bag of rocks. He had been doing some rock collecting and wanted to sell his collection to his friends. I thought, oh, how nice. Mario loves rocks. And he wants to share. So, what did we do? Well, we had made a mistake. We had moved onto a street with a drug dealer, and so we put a for sale sign on our house, and we moved out to the suburbs, and we said, enough of that. No, that's not what we did. We prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed that God would remove Mario from our lives. <clears throat> and as we prayed, um, God... God kept giving me these same stupid passages of Scripture over and over. And I, it was it was the Scripture that said this, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I'd say, that's nice, God. What else do you have for me? Anything else in there? I figured out how, how to pray for Mario. I couldn't figure out how to love him. My wife did a much better job than I did, honestly. She would make pies, or when we would when we'd have dessert and we'd have some leftovers, she would go over to the house and give it to him and say, hey, we just wanted you to have this. We love you. Just little acts of kindness. I had bitterness in my heart. She was trying to do what God was showing us to do. Over time... Um, we started to develop a, a real relationship with that family. And, and believe it or not, one of the things that really got us into the home and, and, and got us into relationship with them is that um, our children went to the public schools together. And that was another big decision for my wife and I. Do we, do we send our, our kids to the public schools? And, and just so that you know how big of a decision this is, in Memphis, Memphis City Schools, we just learned this last night, not last night, a couple of, uh, a couple of nights ago, 30% of the students in the Memphis City Schools drop out. 14% of those who graduate, 14% graduate college-ready which means that they make at least a 19 on the ACT. Memphis City School Systems is in complete failure, but we felt like God was leading us to, to put our children in that school system. And let me tell you why God, I, I mean, looking back on this now, I'm, I'm starting to see and understand why God called us to live in the city and live across the street from Mario and to pray for him and to put our kids in the public school system. It's because there's spiritual darkness throughout our city and throughout the world. And that God is calling us to go into that darkness and to be light there. I have friends who've uh, been in Afghanistan and Sudan, people from our church, and, and our family will pray for them regularly, but I promise you, and I, I can't manufacture the same fervor and zeal that I have when I pray for, for Mario and for our schools as when I pray for Sudan, because in my city, I've got skin in the game. It's my own kid's life that's at stake. And I pray with a fervor that I cannot muster for, for the people of Sudan. There's some, I can't remember this guy's name, that talks about prayer walking. And the importance of prayer walking is that you can pray on site with insight. But you have to get out into the place that God has called us to be, to, to, to pray and to intercede on behalf of his people. God started to build this relationship with his family across the street. Um, Partly is uh, we realized that not only um, were we supposed to share with them and love them, but that we were supposed to receive from them, that we were supposed to have needs and to allow 
people in our community to meet our needs. And one of my greatest needs is to learn how to cook ribs. Because every time I try to cook ribs, I burn them, and they're terrible. And uh, Darnell, who lived with Mario and Toya across the street, he was cooking ribs all the time. And so I went over to his house and said, Darnell, can you teach me how to cook ribs? He's like, yeah, I can teach you how to cook some ribs. And he did, man, and they were good, good ribs. And I said, um, Darnell, you know what? I'm building a shed in my backyard. Have you ever done any construction work? He's like, yeah, I know I'll do construction work. I said, would you um, like to come help me build my shed? And he's like, yeah, I hope you build your shed. And he came over to my house. And he built my shed. He's really good with the nail gun. And we worked for a couple hours, and we sat down. And we're drinking some water, and we're talking. This was right before Easter. And, and Darnell asked me, he's like, do you all do an Easter egg hunt? I was like, no, we don't do an Easter egg hunt. Um, we celebrate the Passover. He said, what's the Passover? It's like, well, let me tell you what the Passover is. I told him the story of, of Israel and, and, and the plagues and um, how the last plague, you know, that uh, God um, told Moses to, that, that the people were to take a lamb and to kill it and take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of their house and that the angel of death would pass through and that it, the, the blood would save the people from death. The blood of the Lamb would save the people from death. And this was foreshadowing as a picture of who Jesus is, that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And it's by His blood that we are saved from the death and wrath that we deserve. And that's what we celebrate on Easter, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Darnell said, really? Can I come to church with you? I like, yeah, Darnell, you could come to church with me. Man, I'm glad I didn't burn that house down. (laughs) I sure wanted to. I have students who come through sometimes, and um, one of the things I regularly hear when we're trying to provoke people to go to the hard places, uh, to go to places like Afghanistan and Sudan, India, places that uh, have been resistant to the gospel, Places where there are whole people groups that um, have zero Christians, zero churches, zero witness to the gospel. The places most in need of a Christian witness. Try to provoke and, and entice and encourage people to go to these dark places. And some of the things I hear regularly are, um, God really has given me a love for uh, Hispanic culture. And I think that's great. Hispanic folks are easy to love. I love Hispanic people. God told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Not one time have I heard somebody, God is really given me a deep, deep love for my enemies, and I just want to go into the deepest, darkest regions of the earth and love them. If God has given you a love for Hispanic people, then this is what I want you to do. Call them on the phone and invite them to go with you to Afghanistan. Okay? There are many folks in here, we've had a couple of Kenyans up here. I love Kenyan people. There are lots and lots of churches in Kenya. There are lots of godly... We had a Kenyan man come up here and lead us in worship and get down on his knees. And he was praying so fervently in the Spirit and glorifying God so much that I almost left the seat and went home because I was like, this thing is done, man. This guy's rocking. They don't need me. And you know what? It's true. They don't need me. They don't need me in Kenya. They got it covered. If you love the Kenyan people, this is what you do. You call them up on the phone. Hey, you want to go to Mogadishu with me? Come on, let's go. You want to go to Darfur? Yes? Let's do it, brother. Let's go. That's it. Let's be the church together. And together, let's go into these dark places. 
I had another uh, brother here from Egypt who was telling me about some of the things that are, are going on in Kenya, and, and his heart was going out uh, for the Kenyan people because um, the Muslims are infiltrating, aren't they? Yeah. And he said that they're coming up um, from Somalia, and they're coming in uh, to Kenya, and they're working to convert people and to turn Christians into Muslims. And his heart was breaking for his, his Kenyan brothers and sisters, and he's... And, and, um, so you know what I told him? I said, this is what Jesus said. He said, to bind the strong man and then plunder his goods. So if the strong man is, Somalia, is in Somalia, let's go to Somalia. Right? And let's pray and bind the strong man and plunder his goods so that he doesn't plunder ours. Right? Amen? Yeah, it's good. We need to join you. You've got brothers and sisters in here that tonight are going to join you maybe. I hope. Yeah. Another example, I have a friend. Uh, she might be here tonight. She was in Louisville for a conference. A uh, young lady who... Um, I, I want to kind of paint a picture for you because we need to have a realistic picture of what taking up our cross and and following Jesus looks like and the suffering that we might entail and what it might look like and what it might not look like. But I've got a friend um, who uh, just graduated with a master's degree and is going into the public school system and is working her first year uh, in, in the public schools in Memphis. And day one, she gets to her class and she has 50 students. 50. Somebody had miscalculated the teacher-student ratio and she had 50 teachers for weeks and weeks. 50 students, sorry. She had 50 students in her class for weeks and weeks. Um, and they had to, they had to hire a, a new person to come in later in the year. And when that happens, the, um, the district kind of puts pressures on the school to hire teachers out of the surplus pool. Okay, so what happens in the city of Memphis is that once a teacher uh, stays in, in the Memphis city school system for three years, they can't be fired basically unless they abuse a kid. Okay, you have tenure and you can't get rid of them. And so what happens is that, that the principals do all these tricks with numbers and with their students so that they have more teachers than they need and they send them into the surplus pool and then they bring more kids into the school so that they can go and hire the teachers that they want because they can't legally fire bad teachers. And so the surplus pool grows and grows and grows with really bad teachers that nobody wants. And then the district, because of unions, put pressure to hire the teachers and bring them back into the class. And so that's what happened in our school. And so they brought this lady in to help teach math and to relieve the 50 students so that she could take half the students. And day one, what happened? She didn't show up. Tay dude didn't happen. She didn't show up. Why? Because she had taken a medical leave of absence for the first 60 days of school. 50 students back in her class. Then my friend started suffering from anxiety. Take up my cross. Take up our cross and follow me. You will suffer from anxiety and depression. You will suffer from weird diseases that doctors can't explain. I went through this episode where I was having all kinds of stomach problems. And it was from anxiety. It was about the same time we were going through all that stuff with Mario. It was just anxiety. But it hurt. A couple nights, my wife thought I was going to die because I was screaming in bed all over in pain. Why would we do that? Why would we endure that? Why not just leave and go home? We can't. Jesus has sent us to be the church. We're his representatives. He suffered, so we must suffer. But it's not suffering for suffering's sake. It's suffering for a purpose. It's suffering so that others might experience redemption through the great name of Jesus Christ. We suffer so that others might live. And they might join with us. And they might be set free from hell to come and to, to join the church. So that through the preaching of the gospel, through the healing of the sick, that the gates of hell might be battered down. And Jesus promises that they will, so that the people who are trapped in hell might come and be a part of the church, and that we might go from one walled city 
of hell to another, to another, to another. Until the prophecy of Matthew 24:14 has been fulfilled, where Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached among all nations and then the end will come. Jesus is coming back, folks. And he's given us a timeline, sort of. No one knows the day or the hour, but he's given us this prophecy that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth are to bow their knees before the Son of Man who's been given power and authority over every tribe, tongue, and nation. We have to, we have to, we have to take the gospel into the pit of hell to the spiritually dark places of the earth to be his light. I want to finish with a with a um, with a one last story. Um, one of my favorite memories growing up was uh, of reading books with my dad. And um, he would come into my bedroom and we would lay down uh, and he would read uh, The Lord of the Rings to me. And he would read The Chronicles of Narnia. And he would read until I fell asleep. And um, the next night when we, it was time to start the story again, he would give me a summary of all the things that happened while I was sleeping. Because he would have continued reading, and we'd be like 50 pages further than where we left off the night before. And I love that. I love those stories. I love that time with my dad. And so I've got a six-year-old son now, and six months ago, um, we were reading through the Chronicles of Narnia, and we were reading the story of Prince Caspian, and uh, my son has a bunk bed, and he's in the top bunk, and I climbed up into the top bunk with him, and I was just reading the story of Prince Caspian. And through Prince Caspian, through the story of Prince Caspian, God gave me a word to share with you tonight. Okay? So in the story of Prince Caspian, uh, there there are four main characters, right? There's um, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. They're all brothers and sisters. Okay? And they have, in previous stories, they've fought and battled uh, with Aslan, who's the Christ character in the story. Aslan is the lion. And they've battled with him. And in the story of Prince Caspian, these four brothers and sisters, sisters along with another uh, dwarf that I don't remember his name. I don't know if he's really that important to the story. But um, they were going uh, to find Prince Caspian to join with him and to join forces so that they could come and, and, and fight the, the rebel faction that had take, taken over the land and that they, so that they could uh, establish the rightful king. Prince Caspian is, is, the, is the rightful king over the land. And so they're trying to get to Prince Caspian, and they come along, and they, they come to this river, and um, they can't figure out how to get across the river. And Lucy, the youngest, looks way out into the distance, and she says, Look, I see Aslan, and he's calling to us. We should go and follow him. And the, and the other brothers and sisters say, Lucy, you're imagining things. We don't see anything. We don't see Aslan. Come on, you're just You're just dreaming. And Peter says, look, we need to go down this path right here and follow this path. This looks like the easiest way. So they all followed wise King Peter down into the valley, along the river's edge, looking for a way to cross. And they never found a way to cross. They went on and on and on. And finally they doubled back and went back to where they had come from. And they set up camp after wasting a full day. They have this camp, and they set up this camp, and they build a fire in the woods, and, and Lucy says again, she says, look, it's Aslan. He's not far off anymore. He's right here in our midst. He's right here. Don't you see him? And they look at Lucy, and they say, Lucy, stop messing around. No, we don't see Aslan. He's not here. Don't Why would Aslan appear to you and not to us? Don't we love Aslan too? 
Didn't we fight with him? Didn't we battle with him by his side? Come on, Lucy. And Lucy watches and Aslan's starting to walk off into the woods. She's like, guys, we've got to go. I, I'm not going to be able to see him much longer. Come on, let's go, let's go. We've got to follow Aslan. Like, no, Lucy, we're not following Aslan because there is no Aslan. And Lucy says, guys, I'm sorry, but I've got to go. And she starts walking. And she starts following the lion into the woods. And, and her brothers and sisters um, turn and look at each other and say, what are we going to do? She's lost her mind. We've got to follow her to make sure that she's safe. And so they follow Lucy and they follow her through the woods. And, and the woods start to open up and there's this huge ravine and it drops off and the road disappears. And Aslan turns left, Lucy turns left, the other children turn left, and they look, and there's this narrow road that's going along the edge of the ravine that they had never seen before. And they're walking along that, that narrow edge, and then they see a bridge that crosses the ravine that goes over, over the river. And as they're walking across the, the bridge, one by one, Edmund's first, and he says, I see him. Lucy was telling the truth. It's Aslan. And one by one, the others, the uh, Susan and Peter, they see Aslan. That's it. That's the end of the story. <laughs> this is what the story means. I read the story and it hit me in a flash, and I just started weeping. Because I knew that this was God's word for you. This is God's word for us today. That in our church, in the American church, there are many, many, many of us who love Jesus Christ. And we've fought with Him, and we've served with Him, and He is our treasure. But we've taken our eyes off of Him. And we've started to think on our own, our own wise thoughts about what's the best way to go. What's the best way to build the church? How do we attract people in so that they might be saved? And we've lost our way because we've taken our eyes off Jesus. And even though we love him, we can't see him anymore. Because we're not following his ways. We're following our ways. We've lost track of the narrow path. And we've started following the wide path of the ways of this world. And we can't see Jesus. And it, it takes young Lucy, the youngest, she's the youngest one in the family. She has eyes of faith to see him. And she follows him down that path and she leaves her family behind. Because Jesus is more important than her family. And it happens that her family, they don't see Jesus, but they love their sister and so they follow her. And such is the case with you and me. That Jesus Christ is calling us this very night to go into the dark places, to go to the edge of the ravine, to go to the very gates of hell. And our family members aren't going to understand it. But we've got to go anyway. We've got a hope. We've got a hope that they will follow. Even if they can't see Jesus out of their love for us, maybe, maybe they'll follow us into these dark places. And then you know what really hit me about this story? This is what's so awesome for you, for you guys. Because this isn't God's word for me. This is God's word for you. You know who Lucy is? What's the gift that she's been given? Say it loud. What's the gift that she's been given? She's the healer. 
Her brothers and sisters, her sister's given a bow, her brother's given swords. She's given this little flask to heal those that are wounded. And this is what I believe Jesus Christ is saying to you today. That he is raising up a new generation, a young generation of Lucy's, of healers, that are going to follow him by faith into the hard places. And not only are people in these hard places going to hear the gospel and believe and be healed and receive Jesus Christ as their their Lord and Savior, but the churches that they leave back home are going to be transformed. Because out of the church's love for you, they'll follow you into these dark places. You've got to go. You've got to go. Gil was talking about it this morning. You've got to go. We've got to empty the seats of our buildings. And we've got to get out into the mission field. And we've got to suffer and serve alongside Jesus. Not for suffering's sake, but so that others might be healed. One last thing. When Paul was going and and starting churches and going from city to city to city, he was proclaiming the gospel and he was being beaten and whipped for it. And you know what? It wasn't really by the pagans. It was by the religious leaders. It was by um, his kinsmen, his fellow religious leaders. The church is not going to understand. Your family's not going to understand. The ones that you love most and are closest to are not going to understand why in the world you want to go to Mogadishu. But Jesus understands. And that's where he's headed. We've got to follow. Paul comes back around on his missionary journey. He says he went back to encourage the churches by appointing elders and doing what? Encouraging them, saying that it's through many trials and persecutions and much suffering that we enter the kingdom of God. It's a word of encouragement, folks. If you're suffering, if it's hard, guess what? You're on the right path. You're in good company. You've got legions of people who've gone before you who have suffered and died and done the same in the name of Jesus Christ and for his kingdom and for his glory. Won't we do the same? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the great I Am incarnate who came to this fallen world literally battered down the gates of hell and bound the strong man and plundered his goods. But you're populating your kingdom with stolen goods. Jesus, you, you, you gave me this picture earlier in prayer and I want to pray it back to you now. And this is... So just a picture that Jesus gave me as we were praying earlier. It's this picture of Jesus in a field and uh, bending down and um, plucking up a dandelion and blowing gently on the dandelion and the seeds scattering throughout the earth. Falling to the ground and dying. And as those seeds died, new flowers arose in in their place. Beautiful, golden flowers. And we all know that dandelions are a pest. They're a nuisance. They're a weed. Jesus is blowing on us. And is scattering us to the farthest regions of the world. And that we are going to go to those places. That we're going to die to ourselves. And some of us, yes, some of us may actually physically die. But new churches are going to rise out of that place. To glorify God. And they're going to be a nuisance. To Satan. 
to the enemy. They're going to be a nuisance because they're going to bind the strong man and plunder his goods. They're going to... Jesus is taking back what's rightfully his. Satan is an imposter. He's set up a false kingship. That he's sending us. He's sending us to reclaim what is rightfully his. What is rightfully his. And Jesus is bringing all of his enemies. Right now he's bringing all of his enemies beneath his feet. So that he might take the kingdom. He might take his enemies and hand them back over to God. So that God might be all in all. That Jesus' reign has not yet ended. He is sending us out to do his work into the hard places, to claim his name, to heal the sick, so that people might experience the freedom and the liberty that God has for them. God, may it be so with us. Lord, Lord Jesus, we bend our knee. We recognize your authority. We understand that we are living stones in the hands of the master carpenter and that you are building your temple and that you are dwelling within us. Do not use stones made of brick and mortar, but that you use living stones, flesh and blood. That you are using us to build your kingdom. We give ourselves to you so that you might do that work. It's in Jesus' name we pray.